Would you or anyone you know be interested in the best of what we've learned from over 350 expert interviews? Business expert interviews just like this one you're about to listen to. Plus, I'll share what we discovered spending $50,000 to go through over 100 years of business success research. Thousands of evidence-based scientific studies on what really works. Visit bestbusinesscoach.ca for more info on how, in 90 days or less, you can get eight better business habits or get three times your money back. That's 90 days to eight types of better business, fitness, and mindset habits. These will determine who survives and thrives in these unusual times and who doesn't. Visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. You'll discover our new business coaching and accountability program for business, fitness, and mindset all in one. You'll also learn how you can get over $11,336 in free bonuses for only $1. Go to bestbusinesscoach.ca for more info. That's bestbusinesscoach.ca, like Canada or California. See you there. Right. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Todd Brown. And Todd is considered the number one authority on engineering profitable customer acquisition campaigns. He's also the creator of the renowned E5 method. Todd is a repeat guest on our show and one of the most sought after marketing experts other experts go to when they need help with their own businesses. So his list of coaching clients, uh, consulting clients and subscribers reads like a who's who of A-list entrepreneurs. And his agency has created the promotions behind some of the biggest direct response marketers and companies online. So I've asked Todd to join us here today to talk about vaccine mandates. Kidding. <laughs> oh, doing, boy. Man? Good, man. I'm glad to be back with you, man. It's been uh, a long time. We're both kind of uh, grizzled and, and beaten and battered. <laughs> uh, it's been a wild couple but, of years, yeah. Yeah, man. But I'm, uh, I'm excited to be back with you. Yeah, okay. So uh, it has been a few years. I'm not even sure. I tried to check. Um, I thought you'd done two interviews with us, but this is your second. Um, I always love what I see you doing online. You know, that's why we did the first interview. I know you're a huge proponent of things like social proof, proving your merit, your worth. You're really big on fundamentals, I think, and also following the best practices, um, following success in that. But for the people that just met you in that, let's kind of go back in time a little bit. Let me ask, how did you even get started in this? How did you get into business and marketing to begin with? Yeah, man. Great question. So many, many moons ago, many, many years ago, I was working for a fantastic health club company. We had several locations and I was responsible for one of the departments in this uh, company, the, the personal training department. And I was responsible for generating revenue through this department. Uh, at its peak, we had about 70 trainers. We had uh, across multiple locations. We had like eight managers and two directors and so I was responsible for kind of steering this entire department to produce a certain amount of revenue every year. And one day I got a direct mail piece, a postcard, and it was a direct response based postcard. Now, at the time, I knew nothing about advertising, marketing. I had no idea. You know, I, I thought advertising was marketing, marketing, advertising, all that jazz. And this particular direct mail piece was offering a like a home study kit for fitness professionals. Uh, um, and so I went to my boss, asked my boss, hey, is it cool if I get this? I'm going to expense it. It was a few hundred dollars. He said, roll with it. 
I got this home study course to show you how long ago this was. The thing was filled with cassette tapes, a hard diskette. It was like, you know, three ring binders. Um, many of your listeners don't even know what a cassette tape is, man. And so they're like, uh. um, and so, yeah, I, I became, you know, I dove in and I, I, I just was enamored with this idea of being able to kind of take a sales presentation, turn it into a print, turn it into a piece, uh, a marketing piece, and then be able to leverage that piece to ultimately generate, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of sales. And so I just dove in, I started studying this thing like crazy, uh, and started trying, uh, as much of it as I possibly could within my department and some stuff worked, some stuff I had to adapt and change and, to fast forward over time, my department became the poster child in this company. My department became the shining star because we implemented and tweaked and, and whatnot, all of these direct response methods. And that's when I just really got bit by the bug and wanted to see in what other areas I can use the stuff that I had learned and, and, and implemented uh, to impact other businesses. That, that was my first exposure to direct response marketing. Got it. Got it. Results are addictive. They're really addictive. So this was a lead gen postcard. Was it a free offer that it offered you or was it straight up, straight up sale? I believe uh, it was just a straight up like um, sale, selling this home study kit. I believe it was, if I remember correctly, and it's, you're, you're talking, you know, two decades ago now at this point, yeah. Um, yeah. I believe that it was, uh, it was selling, you know, this home study kit and yeah. i was just kind of blown niche solution right it was exactly yeah. a custom fit for you it was like this is to help people that are responsible for generating revenue in the department hit their targets and goals yeah he, i must have been on some kind of direct mail list and he was doing you know yeah. a, the front end kind of customer generating campaign and and i bought and uh and i was just blown away i was really blown away by the idea that i was blown away at the time by the idea of salesmanship in print Right. Like mm -hmm. I always thought up to that point, I always thought that advertising and marketing, I always thought, number one, that they were one in the same. And I always thought that they were like slogans. You know, what mm -hmm. I associated with advertising and marketing was like what you see from Coca-Cola and Home Depot. Mm -hmm. I never I didn't know anything about this idea of being able to take a complete sales message and, mm. uh, you know, put it into a single marketing piece that you could then leverage to just generate buyers daily without ever even having to speak to anybody. And so right, I was totally right, right. blown away by that idea. And, uh, right. and yeah, and so I dove in. So that's direct response. What's your E5 method? I kind of have to apologize. I mean, I've known of you for years and I even, I even follow some of your stuff, but what's the E5 method? Yeah, so um, I'll give the shortest answer that I possibly can because I don't want to make this a commercial. But so the E5 method is a method based on direct response. It's a method for creating a customer client generating marketing campaign that you can use to bring in new buyers daily from paid traffic, from media buying, uh, and it, 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 it comes from my background. I have a little bit of a unique background compared to, uh, the other, you know, marketing experts or whatever you want to call them out there. Um, in that my, the last two decades, the bulk of that 
has been spent with one foot in the, let's call it the traditional online marketing world, and another foot in the big direct response publishing space. And so right. I was able to see what were the, you know, what, what were the best practices in the online marketing world that weren't being used in the big direct response publishing space? And what were the best practices that were being used in the big direct response publishing space that weren't being used in the online marketing world? And I was really able to see the best of both worlds that were missing from each other and bring them together into a single system. And that became the basis of the E5 method. Again, it's just a way of constructing a marketing message that businesses, entrepreneurs can use to generate new buyers, new clients, new customers every day, predictably. Mm, 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 got it. Well, that, I mean, that sounds super appealing. The way I typically describe to people how direct response came about, whether it's true or not, I think it's an interesting story that I, I feel serves a purpose, but pre-internet, pre-post office, anybody that was a business owner was either like a, uh, an anchor type location, like a grocery store or, you know, the, the butcher, or you were a traveling salesman, right? And so the way you made sales was going from town to town. You'd give your presentation in the little market space. You go knocking on doors and you'd sell your wares, you know? And, you know, we've got some ambitious sales guy. Maybe he's got a baby on the way. Maybe the wife just wants a bigger house. He's trying to figure out how do I get through more doors in a day? Like I got to, how do I get more sales in a day? And he realizes I'm kind of doing the same spiel every time I knock on a door, every time I pull up in a marketplace. So he gets this idea, I can scribble this down. And when I get to a town, I can pay some of the boys to run out and deliver these letters. And then when I get to the doors, I'll start going through them faster because they've kind of already been warmed up a bit. And he starts doing this and realizing that some of them, Hey, what's up, sweetheart? Oh, this is my little daughter. She just woke up. Come say hi to Todd. Yeah. Hey, you. This is Malaya. She just turned three. Malaya, hey. by the way, means freedom for those. I love three. it. Hey. Hey, good morning. Oh, yeah, okay. Hey. <laughs> That's how there I look go. when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that little girl is my pride and joy. So I, I, um, I, yeah. I, I can relate, brother. You get it. Yeah. I can relate, brother. I mean, my two daughters are, are you know, are, uh, are my pride and joy, man. And so I totally right? get it. There's more forms of wealth than money and people, people forget that. But back to Amen. the story. So this guy realizes not only is he going to get into some doors and people are already warmed up, but some of these people are just ready to buy. And through iteration, he starts realizing he can just send this letter out with an order form attached. And now he doesn't even have to go knocking on doors. He just pulls into town, pays the boys to run distributors letters. They come back with orders and money and he gives them the goods and they go back. And now you have the postal service, you know, and he talked about being able to take a sales presentation and, you know, scale it. I mean, that's the idea is that this was, this was the, the birth of advertising, being able to take a proven sales presentation and package it up, you know, and the conversion rate, I said this at uh, Brian Kurtz's Titan event and Joe Polish came up to me after and was like, dude, that was really brilliant. Kim McCarthy too. But I just said that, you know, nothing will convert like a one-on-one -on -one face. To I forget the question was, but I, they were talking about having struggling with VSLs and sales pages. And I was like, well, nothing will convert like a one-on-one -on -one face to face, kneecap to kneecap conversation. And everything is just a, is like a, is, is a more redundant version of that. So if you're converting eight out of 10, face to face, then maybe you'll convert five out of 10 over the phone, you know, or a webinar. And then if you make a video out of that, you'll convert three out of 10. But you know, in a sales letter, you'll convert one out of 10 or 0.5 out of 10. But you can send 100,000 letters in the mail, you can't have 100,000 sales meetings. And that's where you give up conversion rate and effectiveness for scale. 
Yeah. And so that's why I think what we're talking about is really powerful. But you mentioned bringing kind of the old school world where you could just do that to this new world where people don't want to get a full sales pitch. So can you maybe talk about what are some of the fundamentals in the new world of direct response? Well, I, I mean, look, I, I think that, you know, that's a huge question. And I love the question, man. I, I think, look, man, I think, you know, while, and let me say this, while tactics change, you know, as technology changes, consumption habits of consumers change and evolve over time as consumers become more sophisticated and are exposed to, you know, new mediums and whatnot. What doesn't change are the principles of effective marketing and selling. And specifically, right, that they're, you know, people buy products and services for the results that they're going to get, the change, the transformation, the improvement to their life. They're ultimately, right, people don't buy products and services for the products and service it, it, themselves. Right. They buy for what they perceive those products and services are going to do for them. And so I share that in this context because I don't care what you're marketing and selling, what it is that you're offering. Number one, you have to understand the problem that your uh, particular product or service addresses. You have to understand what your prospects uh, dislike most about that. What are the frustrations, issues, um, problems that your prospects see? How do they describe them? What's their language that they use? And ultimately, you have to be able to show that your product or service can not only solve their problem, but that it does it with some aspect of superiority, meaning that your product mm. either, your product or service either delivers the result faster or with less work or with less risk. Right. And so at the end of the day, that's why people buy all the other things like the change in, you know, today we've got video sales letters and years ago we didn't today we've got the internet and years ago we didn't all of those things, right. Are really just tactics or mediums of communication. And while those things change at the end of the day, man, you, you, the, the things that don't change are what causes people or what drives people to buy and so I know that that probably didn't really answer the question, but I share that only because I think, look, man, you know, at the end of the day, people have to, you know, in order to get attention today, what people care most about is what's different about your solution. What's different about the way that your product or service works to give me the result that they, that I, that I want, right? People don't want more of the same. They want to know what's different, different yeah. for whatever reason gives people hope. It makes people feel like maybe the difference in this thing is what I've been missing all along is what I've left out of everything else that I've tried. And so it's what grabs attention. It's, it, it's, it's what creates engagement, meaning it's what gets people to engage with your message to hear more about this difference. And is this difference, you know, does it, does it make your product or service superior to others? At the end of the day, people need to believe the claims that you make about the way that your product or service can work, which is why today we need even more proof to back up our claims and our benefit statements. Uh, and then ultimately today we need a, you know, you need a good, uh, uh, really, you need a great offer, what we refer to as a sin offer, right? You need to make it easier for prospects to say yes to your offer than it is for them to say no to your offer. Mm -hmm. And so- you call that it a sin offer? I call it a so sin offer an because so it's an acronym and it stands for superior, irresistible, and a no and no brainer. And so superior, mm. superior to what? Superior to competitive 
or competitors offers. And by the way, let me just say this, that when we're talking about products and services, what most entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs think about is they think they tend to think they're only competing with other businesses or entrepreneurs that are selling their exact type of product or service. So for example, let's say you were marketing and selling a, um, a software application to get top rankings in Google. Well, the reality is, is that what people ultimately want that are in the market for that type of software, they want top rankings on Google. They want to be found by prospects searching for their type of business. And so I share that because you're as a software owner uh, selling a software to get people top rankings. You're not only competing with other people that are selling software, but you're also competing with agencies that are selling right. top rankings. And you're, you're competing with people that are offering freelancing services to get you backlinks and whatnot. Why? Because all of those things, a software, an agency, a freelancer to get you backlinks, all of those things are ultimately solutions to the same problem. They're solutions that produce the same outcome. And so I'm sharing that in this context because you are competing with anybody and everybody else that is promising your prospect the same result, even if the vehicle to get that result is different, even if that vehicle mm -hmm. is not a software, but is a service or is, you know, a part-time service or is an agency. And so number one, you have to have a superior yeah. offer. Your offer needs to, needs to be superior in the eyes of the prospect compared to every other option that they have. And superiority comes in a lot of different forms, well beyond the scope of, of, of this discussion. Sure. Um, and then irresistible. An irresistible offer comes from, number one, the benefits, the results, the outcome, right, that your offer is ultimately going to produce for them. And so the more benefits, the more problems that this solution or this offer solves, the more positive results that it produces – uh, the more irresistible it is perceived to be, especially when there is a lopsided value um, equation, meaning where the, the price that the prospect is going to pay to get to take advantage of the offer is far less than the value of the problems being solved and the results and the outcome. And then you've got no brainer and no brainer really is directly tied to um, two elements of the offer. Number one, it's tied to terms. So in an offer, there's price and there's terms. And today, in today's society, terms of an offer, which I'll explain in a second, is more, it's almost more valuable than is price. Meaning, yeah. let's say we were selling a $1,000 product. Well, what are the terms? Is it a hard offer where meaning that folks have to pay the $1,000 today? Is, yeah. Is it a soft offer where they pay nothing today and only a thousand in, in, in a month only if they love it? Is it four payments of 250? In other words, right? How are they making the payment of the of the thousand dollars? And so with the right terms, like let's say a soft offer, pay nothing today, get take the product, use it, enjoy it for the next 30 days, and only pay if you love it is an extremely attractive um, proposition. And when you combine that with a guarantee. And there's, again, deep, lots of different types of guarantees, conditional, unconditional. But when you combine that with a guarantee, you end up with a no-brainer proposition. So when you have, you have a SIN offer, when your offer is superior to the alternatives, when it is irresistible because of the value proposition, the value equation, and because of all of the benefits that you get and the, the problems being solved, and it's no-brainer when 
the terms are so enticing and the guarantee takes away virtually all risk. That's the type of offer that uh, that you really want to put together. And so does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Now I want to ask about your breakdown. Do you believe that it's about list, offer, and then copy in that kind of order? I know Brian Kurtz has his own little preferred. Yeah, no, I mean, and Brian is a dear friend. I love Brian to death. Uh, and so I've also been out to speak to his crew a, f- a few times um, for Brian. And Brian is absolutely spot on. And so the idea is that when it comes to the success of a marketing campaign, the order of priority is list, offer, copy. And so list, number one, makes sense, right? Like you have to be talking to the right people. You have to be talking to people that are interested in what it is that you ultimately have to offer, right? Or they have the problem that you are ultimately solving. So I always like to say, like, we could be selling the greatest mixed martial arts training program uh, on the planet. And if we're talking talking to elderly grandmothers, we're likely, right, no matter how great the offer is, no matter how great the copy is, we're likely going to fall short. And so number one is the right audience. And so sometimes that's referred to the list. Who are you talking to? Number two is, is the offer. And the offer is more important than is the the copy. A great offer can make up for weak copy, but great copy Mm. will never make up for a a weak offer. The analogy that I love to give, uh, that I've given for years, uh, the, the example is, if we said to your audience, if we said, hey, we've got two vehicles, two vehicles that we would like you to market and sell for us. The first vehicle is a brand new gunmetal Aston Martin outfitted with every bell and whistle that you can imagine. Gorgeous. Let's just call it a sticker price, 300 grand. And the second vehicle that we want you to market and sell for us is a, an old banged up VW truck, rusted, you know, quarter panel, no AC, AM, FM radio. Thing is torn like the Flintstones. <laughs> there you go. Right. Like just banged up out, out the wazoo. And let's say we said to your audience, we said, I want you to write that car, who knows that vehicle worth, you know, two grand or whatever. And we said, look, I want you to sell each of these vehicles for us for $30,000. Now, look, it, you know, it doesn't take it doesn't take a marketing genius or a sales wizard to be able to sell the Aston Martin, a three hundred thousand dollar car for thirty thousand. Your 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 biggest problem will be convincing people that it's legit and that it's not stolen. Right. Like right. you don't need to be a marketing wizard. You don't need to be a sales wizard. Right. And you're going to sell that bad boy. But you you need to be a marketing and sales wizard to sell that beat up truck okay. for, okay. for thirty thousand dollars. And so that may right. be an extreme example, but that I- illustrates the fact that when you've got a great offer, right, it can make up for a lot of marketing shortcomings. And so, yes, that's why the offer is more critical than is the copy. Copy should be there to support a great offer, which is why, just as a side note, in the E5 method, when we're engineering a um, an E5 campaign, we begin with first and foremost, the what we call the examination stage. The examination stage is really the b- best way to put it is that's where the research is done. That's where we uncover what is it that prospects want? What are their wants, their desires, their emotions, their feelings? What are their beliefs? What have they seen before? What have they been exposed to before? What is the current state that they're in? And what is the after state that they want to be in? Meaning, right, like what, what are they trying to fix and what are they trying to experience? And that's where we do all the research. We, we examine competitors and their marketing and their offers. And then we examine the product, blah, blah, blah. 
And then when we get into the engineering, one of the very first things that we engineer is the offer. And so while most entrepreneurs and marketers take, you know, save the offer for last or they spend or invest 15, 20 minutes in the offer and then they spend weeks on the copy, we always start with the offer and right. And the copy and the messaging is there to support the offer and it's there to lead prospects to want the offer and then to see the offer as superior, irresistible and a no brainer. Hmm. So what are the other, you said five E five and you gave us examination and engineering. What, what, what are we missing? Yeah. So, so no, no holding out. It's all yours. So there are, so it's, it, it's a five stage process, obviously examine engineer. The third stage is evaluate. And we take this new E five campaign and we, evaluate it in the form of what we call an MVF, a minimum viable funnel. So a minimum viable Mm. funnel is the least number of steps or stages, pages, if you will, in a campaign that you need to ensure you have a profitable campaign. And so we roll out this this, we roll out this new E5 campaign as a minimum viable funnel, and then we evaluate the performance. And we're evaluating the performance again beyond the scope of this uh, of this discussion. Sure. But there are, you know, we look at the metrics to understand. Right, number one, have we nailed it? And then number two, uh, you know, like we'll we'll take the MVF and we'll roll it out. If you have a list like an email database we'll roll it out to the email database. We're looking for a minimum of a 2% conversion rate to your house file with a minimum viable funnel. If you don't have a house file, then we go out to cold traffic. And with cold traffic, we're looking for, with an MVF, we're looking for 60 cents back on the dollar. So if we invest a dollar in traffic to test, to evaluate this minimum viable funnel, we're just looking for 60 cents back. As long as we get 60 cents or more back on the dollar, I know that we'll be able to turn that campaign into a winner, which brings us to the next uh, the next stage, which is enhance. And that's basically where we take a proven E5 funnel, the proven MVF that we just evaluated that hit our minimum metric requirements. And then we turn it into a full blown campaign like a full-blown E5 campaign, no longer and a minimum viable funnel. And then after we do that, we go to the expand stage. And the expand stage is all about expanding the reach of that campaign. So expanding the audience. And that's done through media buying. It's done through, you know, the platforms that we use, the audiences that we target, the budget that we use, and so on. Got it. Now, right now, I got two questions that are in the top of my mind. One is, when you talk about a minimum viable funnel, how close is that lead? How how often is it leading to speaking to a real human? And the reason why I say this is, I know a lot of people want to test their campaigns by building a sales page and sending traffic there, but then they're twiddling their thumbs, looking at heat maps, scroll maps, all this stuff, trying to figure out why people did or didn't do something. So with your minimum viable funnels, are you often sending people to a person or a group call of some sort for real-time feedback? Or you do straight to like an offer page? 
Yeah. So great question, man. Great question. Deep question. Number one, I would say that, um, that it really depends on the business model, right? So there are some businesses, there are some business models that don't use the telephone. There are no, you know, in, in many online business models, there is no sales department, right? The marketing, marketing does the, the selling through offer presentation. There is no inside sales department or outbound sales department, none of that. And so it really depends. There are some people that just want to sell lots of low ticket products, lots of low ticket courses, training programs in the info space, that sort of thing. And so that's going to have a very different set of campaigns or campaign models compared to, let's say, the folks that are selling agency services or the folks that are selling high ticket offers and whatnot. So um, it really depends. It depends on price point. If we were selling a $29 product, we're not going to drive somebody to the telephone. Uh, if we're selling a, you know, a $2,999 product, then likely we're going to send somebody to the telephone. So depending on the business model and the campaign model that we go with is also is ultimately going to determine whether there's a human involved or not more often than not, there is not a human involved. And so in the typical MBF, sometimes there is right. Like sometimes there is, uh, but more often than not, there is no human involved. I just want to address one other thing uh, that you had said. And so you said, you know, a lot of people are, because I want to share two really valuable lessons. Uh, hmm. You said, you know, there are folks that they'll roll out a campaign and then they're twiddling their thumbs, looking at heat maps and analytics and all this stuff. And so number one, I think it's important for folks to understand that when it comes to things like heat maps, like, and, you know, uh, analytics and whatnot, here's the reality. Okay. The reality is this that uh that there are number one in in the world of direct response all of our decisions should be driven by metrics not opinions right. not assumptions not guesses right should be driven by metrics and so that's the beauty of direct response is that it allows us to make decisions objectively rather than subjectively subjectively is when we're making decisions based on how we feel what we like what we believe objective decision making is when we're making decisions based on numbers and arithmetic which by the right. way let me give you another list of three things that this business is based on so this whole business this whole world of direct response marketing is all about psychology communication and math right psychology mm. communication and math psychology psychology of, of who psychology of the prospect what do they feel what do they want what don't they want what do they look at is a good solution what do they look at as a bad solution what have they seen before what do they look at as old what do they look at as new communication based on that psychology what do we say what do we say to that prospect mm -hmm. to lead them to see our solution as different and superior right and then math mm -hmm. arithmetic and math arithmetic yeah. right is all it's metrics it's numbers yeah. right uh yeah. and, you know now with that being said it's important to understand that there are some metrics that are performance metrics and meaning their value is in simply understanding um, how well a page or stage or part of a marketing campaign is working. So for example, opt-in rate, if you have a lead generation page and you're sending folks to a lead gen page, what percentage of people give their email address, opt-in rate, sales conversion rate, order form completion rate, 
upsell take rate. All of those are simply performance metrics. They only tell you how well that particular stage or page in the campaign is working. But what they don't tell you is whether you have a viable campaign or not. Because you could have a a 60% opt-in rate. You could have a 10% sales conversion rate. You could have a 90% order form completion rate. You could have a a 40% upsell take rate. And you could be losing money every day, right? Because of the cost of traffic and, and so on, right? You could also have a 20% opt-in rate, a 2% sales conversion rate, a 50% order form completion rate, no upsell and be killing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's possible, right? And so my point in sharing that is that at the end of the day, you you can't deposit opt-in rate, sales conversion rate, order form completion rate. None, like those things are like, those things don't prove, they only are used to improve the performance of a campaign. What matters especially when you are, when you're, when you're uh, using paid media, when you're doing paid advertising online, when you're using Facebook advertising, YouTube advertising is how much did it cost me to generate a buyer? And how much did that buyer spend with me? Right. That's That's it, man. Money out, money in. I, I always say like, look, one of the, one of the best lessons that I I've learned over these two decades that I, that I scream from the rooftops as often as I can, that I drill into our clients on a regular basis is this, is that the single most, the the, the single healthiest mindset that an entrepreneur should have is really, you are just an investor when it comes to your marketing. You're an investor. You're investing in the acquisition of assets, just like any other investor, whether whether that investor is investing in equities, in real estate, in fine art, right? Except for us, the assets that we're investing in are customers, clients. Mm -hmm. Those assets, those customers, those clients have a value today. That is the average amount of money that they spend with you the day that they become a client or a customer, what's typically referred to as AOV or average order value. That's the average amount of money that a new buyer spends with you the day that they become a buyer. And just like any other asset or any other investor, there is a cost to acquire that asset. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what we call the CPA cost per acquisition. What does it cost mm-hmm. you to acquire that asset? So what does it cost you to acquire the asset? What is the asset worth to you the day that it becomes your asset, the day that the buyer becomes your buyer? And then there is a future value. Now, the beauty, right? The future value, that is lifetime value, 30-day value, 60-day value, 90-day value. Now, the beauty of what it is that we do compared to the typical investor, the typical, let's say, equity investor, they know what the the, the asset is worth today. They know the the share price of of a stock. And therefore, they also know what it's going to cost them to get that asset. Those are knowns. But to the typical equity investor, the future value is a pure speculation. They think it's going to go up to X amount, right? The beauty with direct response is that over time, the longer you have your... Yeah, we know, man. The longer you have your company, the more mature and sophisticated your company gets, man. The the more confidence you'll have in I know the average buyer is going to be worth X amount uh, on day uh, on day 30, it's going to be worth Y amount on day 60, and it's going to be worth Z amount on day 90. Therefore, we're able to make investing decisions based on mm-hmm. the value today and the future value. So now at the end of the day, what it really comes down to for those people that roll out their campaign, instead of immediately diving in and looking at heat maps and analytics and all these crazy reports and whatnot, the only thing that matters is how much went out and how much came back. 
How much yeah, did it cost right. you to acquire a buyer? And what is that buyer worth? If you spend, yeah. uh, you know, if it costs you $100 to get a new buyer and that buyer spends $200 with you, well, of course, it's a no brain. I don't care what any, mm -hmm. I don't care what the heat map show. I don't care what the analytics show. I don't care the opt-in rate, the sales conversion rate, the order form completion rate, yeah, right? We're good. And that, right, we're good, man. We're good. The only time that those things, right, like or when when we want to see what's the constraint in the campaign, what's the weak link that we need to work on, what is the one page that's underperforming that we can improve, right? But often, man, when like when we've got a campaign that from a cost per acquisition and an AOV perspective, when they are within KPI, meaning for us, let's say, let's keep things real simple and say, when we have a one-to-one -one ratio, Meaning, it, meaning we invest a dollar and we get back a dollar. In other words, it cost us $100 to get a buyer and that buyer is worth $100 to us. That's, that means that, right, we just acquired a buyer for free. Our bank free. account is no right. less to, today than it was a week ago, except now we have the most valuable asset in our business. And yeah, so when right, we have, customers. I don't care about anything else, man. I don't, I don't, right. I don't care. Right. Yeah. No one, no one in my company, none, nobody on my team will say, but Todd, we only have a 2% sales conversion rate. I don't, yeah. don't matter. We, we, yeah. We're acquiring buyers for free. That's right. That's right. All you got to do, if you want to make a hundred thousand dollars and you were, you know, selling this hundred dollar product and spending a hundred dollars to get a buyer, you just need to get everybody to spend $1. You need to go get a hundred thousand customers and get them to spend one more extra dollar with you. And there's your hundred thousand dollars. Now, obviously support all this other stuff, but that's the principle. The principle is the value is in the long-term relationship, not just trying to get rich quick off of a one-time sale. I yeah, that's, that, that, that is, it, you know, that's brilliant what you just said. And I want to make sure that everybody gets that because that's one of the biggest um, differences between the most successful direct response entrepreneurs and marketers and the typical entrepreneur. So the typical entrepreneur is very transactionally minded, meaning that mm -hmm. for the typical mom and pop with the typical brick and mortar location, they, they want a margin on every single sale, right? If it, you know, like if they sell something for a hundred bucks, they don't want to have invested any more than let's say 50 to get that buyer, just as an example. Right. right? And they, they, they apply that math or that, that approach, no matter, no matter whether that is the first sale with somebody or whether it's the 10th time that that person is buying from them. See, mm -hmm. we understand that as investors, the value of the buyer is on, in what's called the back end. So the front end is the very first transaction that somebody um, participates in uh, where they go from being a prospect to a buyer. The back end is every other transaction that they participate in, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, oh, right? Man. The savviest direct response entrepreneurs know that the profit, the money is made in the back end. Therefore, that is why, therefore, right, we always look at, well, what's the most amount that I can spend? to get a buyer, right? Like I always think about, I always look at, and this is an important point. I know I'm, I'm probably going off the rails here, but it, it's, so, it's so valuable for people to get this that like, look, when, you know, it's been said in the world of direct response that, right, he or she, the entrepreneur who can afford to spend the most to get a buyer wins, period. Mm -hmm. He or she who can afford to spend the most, not the least, the most to get a buyer will win. Why? Because you can spend more 
uh, to, to get a visitor to your website. You can invest in things that other entrepreneurs and marketers that your competitors can't, can't do. You also can, if I, you also can have marketing that is, is not nearly as effective. In other words, if, if you can spend $100 to get a buyer and I could spend 200 that means I could have marketing campaigns that operate at half the conversion rate of yours. And I'm golden, right? right? I'm golden. golden. And so I can spend more. I can pay more to get a visitor. I can have marketing campaigns that work half as well as, as, as you can. And so my, my point is that at the end of the day, the more I can afford to spend, the easier this game becomes. And mm -hmm. I can spend more based on the value of that asset, the value of the asset the day that they become a buyer and their future. Meaning if I can get people to spend more and more and more as I deliver more and more value to them, they become worth more to me, those assets. And then I can spend more or invest more to get those assets. That's how you grow a business. Yeah, I've got a buddy. He's in a, in a high transaction volume business and he's got five day buying cycles and he's losing a couple of bucks on the first sale, but he gets up to five more purchases within the first 60 days. And he's making 15% minimum on every other purchase. Yeah. And so when you think about that, like I had someone offer to invest with me, they want to give me 25 grand and they wanted 10%. But you think about that's, and that's not a bad, that's like people who invest in the stock market. They're like, Hey, if I can make 10%, I mean, now we have hyperinflation, but typical normal economy, right? They're happy with 10%. This guy's making 15% in five day cycles because yeah. the high free at that rate, you, you got five, six cycles in a month. You, like you're, you're golden. Yeah. So I love, yeah, people I love need to that. understand. People need to get what you're saying really, because I wish I, I wish I learned that much earlier, right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the idea you said a couple bucks, you know, it's very common, even in, in our core company. Um, and, and for all of the biggest, uh, direct response driven companies uh, that I work with, it is normal to go what's called negative on the front. So you had mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, um, one of my clients, um, Agora, this behemoth in the world of publishing $1.5 billion mm -hmm. a year, you know, 1.5, the, the, the 800 pound gr gorilla in that world. So it's not uncommon for them to not get to break even on the acquisition of a client for six months. Meaning, right, like they don't recoup their money, their investment to acquire a buyer for six months, nice. right? And But why are they willing to do that? They're willing to do that because of exactly what you said, because they know that at month six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they're going to they're going to make money. They're going to profit on that. They have the cash flow. They know their numbers, right? Therefore, they're willing to make the investment. And so, right, mm. like at the end of the day, that's also it's also why they have taken over and gobbled up all their competitors because right. while their competitors are like, Hey, we, yeah. we can afford to spend 50 to get a $50 to get a buyer. And they, they're they like, come we'll along pay you hundred for every buyer you get. <laughs> they're, they're like, look, exactly. They're like, look, man, we're going to spend two fifty to get a buyer. You're you can only spend yeah. 50 You're game over. You can't hang yeah. with us. Just, just, send, just sell me your leads. Just sell and me that's your what, leads. Go and, relax and, on the beach. They'll say here, right, you either, right, yeah. sell us the leads and or we're going to buy your company or put your company out of business. You choose, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's, yeah. the, that's the nature of the beast. I love it. I love it. I'm a huge, I love it. I mean, this is, this is good. So um, I had a couple other questions, but I really actually want to want to dive in on this now. Let's talk about troubleshooting. Like what, what holds most people back? 
Is it, is it this investor mentality? Is it spending too much time on a funnel? Like what are the top three to five, you know, I know you've got a, a, a hard time limit, but like what are the top three to five things trip, tripping people up, holding them back? Yeah, I, so number one is um, that today in most markets, especially the competitive saturated markets, most people just struggle to produce a marketing message that um, that converts well enough to be able to pay for traffic generation. So in other words, you know, like, look, man, today's consumer is highly skeptical, rightly so, is in some markets, they're extremely jaded. They've been um, exposed to a lot of overhyped promises uh, that, which were never delivered. And so today, you know, today what drives people to buy is not the same as what drove people to buy not the same not the same language that drove people to buy you know two decades ago and so number one what what most entrepreneurs struggle with is they are trying to create marketing messages using old school copy methods, right? Where it's filled with hyperbole, it's filled with adjectives and adverbs. It, it smells like copy. It sounds like copy. It's the old school, you know, like, um, right. They offer very little proof in their, in their campaign. There's very little to differentiate their solution from every other option. And they roll out with an ordinary offer. So you take all of those things in combination and it leads to an ineffective customer acquisition marketing campaign. That's the number one thing that, that holds the uh, majority of people back. Number two, I would say, um, just off the top of my head is, um, is a lack of marketing focus. And what I mean by that is that there are a lot of different ways to acquire uh, buyers. There are a lot of different marketing models. Uh, last time I listed them out, it was something like 26 different marketing campaign models that were at well known out there. Just because there are lots of different ways that work doesn't mean that you should be using all of those ways, yeah. right? <laughs> just because you, you know, like, look, just because you hear about somebody using a tactic or a strategy that is effective, that doesn't mean that you should be using that tactic or strategy. And so what I find is that, there is a lot of marketing inefficiency, meaning that if you let's go back to um, our friends at Agora, if you look at Agora, they have a very particular marketing model that they use to acquire buyers. They tend to be video sales letters with a long form version of that. And they tend to be sub $97. So under $97 on the front end. What you don't see from them is they're not, they're not, they're not bouncing from that marketing model over to multi-part video sequences. They're not using survey campaigns. They're, they're not using, not, you know, there's nothing wrong with survey. There's nothing wrong with, you know, uh, um, challenge campaigns, but they understand that there is value in focus in terms of efficiency. Because they mm. use the same model over and over. It works. They use it over mm. and over. They become more efficient, more effective. They learn the nuances. They learn what works, what doesn't work. They've got it down to a science. Too many entrepreneurs are bouncing from one model to another model, to another model, to another model, thinking that the magic is in the model. They hear somebody right. talk about them getting great results from webinars, and they think the answer is a webinar. Or they webinar. think... Uh, 
challenge. They think I'm going to go do a challenge. And when really the reality is, is that um, there's no magic the, in the model. The magic is in the message. The and the, it's in the message. The, it's in, right. It's, it's in the message. And so hmm. the next mistake, the next reason why um, I would say people struggle, and I'll just give this, I'll give three, this will be yeah. the last one is exactly what we talked about is that they don't understand the economics of growing with a growing a direct response driven business, meaning they think it, it, you know, they're, they're looking at marketing performance metrics and trying to find the answer in the marketing performance metrics. And they're trying to, right. I got to get this bad boy up to an 8% sales conversion rate and this and that when really what they're playing, what we're all playing is an economic game is a game of, of financial exchange. Mm-hmm. dollar out dollar what's the i'm making an investment what's the investment worth today what's it going to cost me today and what's the future value of that investment and mm-hmm. so they don't understand they're not thinking like investors they're not they're thinking very transactionally they're thinking about you know how much profit can i make on that very first transaction and so they're sacrificing mm-hmm. growth and customer acquisition right because uh, you can't so have profit and growth I mean, look, you're, you you know, you're not on the, on the front end, you know, on the front end, the front end, that first transaction that the marketing for acquisition is all about maximum acquisition. It's, it's about acquiring the maximum number of buyers, clients, customers, the back end, the second transaction, third transaction, the fourth transaction, that's where the money is made in a direct Mm -hmm. response business. It's not on the first transaction. The first transaction is to produce a customer. You know, I once heard, I think it was, and this is great for, for folks. I think it was Dan Kennedy who said, uh, that the difference between the typical entrepreneur and the savvy direct response marketer is the typical entrepreneur um, generates a customer to produce a sale. Yeah. And right. And the savvy direct response entrepreneur on the front end, right, um, generates a sale to produce a customer. Customer. That's right. Right. Why? Because I want the customer because I know the money is made in the second, the third, the fourth transaction. And so big, you know, might seem like a nuance to folks listening, but it is, um, it's not, I want to acquire the asset. And then my job is to make that asset worth more and more and more and more. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's like, if you install pools, the money's not in installing the pool, the money's in installing the pool, selling the maintenance, the lifeguard lessons, the upgrades. It's about being their per guy or girl or whatever you identify as for the lifetime of that aspect of their life. Maybe it even expands beyond pools. Maybe you get into building patios and selling recreational videos because the pool is a recreational tool. So it's not about trying to make my money off this one thing. It's about becoming the person they go to for that. And even even if you're white labeling stuff, even if you're just getting a a finder's fee for referring other business, being the go-to person. I mean, this is like the taxi business, right? Whether you, you take me there in a plane, a boat, a car, a bike, a trike, I just want to own the phone number people dial pre-apps when they need to get taken somewhere and want to pay money for it. And that was yeah. it. It wasn't the car, it wasn't that. It was I own the phone number everybody calls when they need a ride. And that's Uber, yeah. right? Or Grab if yeah. you're in Asia, it's Grab. You know, it's owning that app that everybody goes to. So I love it. I know. Yeah. And I think, let me, let me say this. Here's a, here really quick, simple, another, another example of a company, which I think really just is is super simple to, to see it is a company like Netflix. 
I don't know what the Netflix membership is today, 10 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever it is. Let's say it's 15 bucks, right? Well, right. That's what the, the, the uh, a typical subscriber pays monthly is $15. Well, I, I say to people all the time, you know, when at, at conferences or on uh, um, shows like this, you know, I'll say like, what do you think, um, wh- what should Netflix be willing to pay to get a subscriber? Now, if you were the typical uh, um, entrepreneur, the typical mom and pop with the transactional mindset, you would say, well, when somebody becomes a Netflix subscriber, they pay 15 bucks. So let's say Netflix should only pay $7 or something like that to get a subscriber because, right, they, then they're going to collect 15 and they're going to make whatever 50%, you know, on their, uh, you know, on their money. But that's a very flawed way to look at it. See, because Netflix knows that the average subscriber, let's say, stays for, you know, 30 months, right? Some, some subscribers stay far longer than 30 months. And I'm just using this as an example. Some stay far longer than 30 months. Some stay far less than 30 months, but on average, it is 30 months, right? Well, that comes out to at $15 a month, that comes out to $450. So Netflix knows that the average subscriber in my made up example is worth $450 to them. So now when we go back and we say, well, what should Netflix be willing to spend to get a new subscriber? Is it a wise investment for Netflix to, let's say, spend 20 bucks to get a new subscriber, even though the day that they became a subscriber means that Netflix goes negative $5. Well, the answer is of course, because in month two, they make back that five plus another 10, and then they remain for another 28 months with them. That's when Mm -hmm. you think like an investor and you realize Netflix is an investor investing in the acquisition of assets. Their assets are subscribers. Their subscribers are worth on average 15 bucks for them on day zero, the day that they become a subscriber and lifetime value, they're worth, call it in this example, 450. At month two, they're worth 30 at month three, they're worth 45 at month four Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they're worth 60 and so on. And so based on that now, what should Netflix be willing to invest? Well, the reality is the more that they're willing to invest, the easier the game becomes for them. Right, right, right. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. We're almost up to the hour. I have, I had two questions, but one I actually really want to ask and it's, it's relevant because talking about subscriptions, how is selling a subscription different than products or services? And my question is, I mean, we just talked about the economics here, so I understand the economic point, but is there a psychological difference? What, any recommendations, do you approach it differently? Yeah, that's a great question, man. So I would say it depends on the subscription to give an example, right? So it depends on the, you know, sometimes it's referred to as a continuity program subscription. It depends on what the subscription is. So let me, let me give you an example. Let me give you two examples. And there's certainly more nuances than just this, but let's say it's a subscription like Netflix, where what you pay today is what you pay today and, and what you get for what you're paying is the same every month. You're basically just paying to continue to get access, like at a health club, let's just say. But then there's also subscriptions like newsletters, where I'm going to get a new, like, like uh, go, let's go back to Agora, where I'm going to learn about investing. You're going to give me investing tips. You're going to give me stock tips or whatever it is. So th- those two, even though they're both subscription-based, those two are different in the way that we market and sell those on the, on the front end. The biggest mm. difference is with the subscription like a newsletter where, um, where let's say we don't, let's say if we, you and I were the publishers of a newsletter on any particular topic, let's just say it was investing, where we don't know what it is that we're going to be talking about next month or the month after. 
We don't know the stock tips that we're going to be giving. We don't know what's going to happen in the economy, you know, in two months from now and three months from now and four months from now. In those instances where you're selling a subscription to, let's say, information or content that is yet to be published, you will use what's called a premium driven campaign, mm. a premium driven campaign. A premium is uh, it's sometimes referred to as a bonus. It's a freebie. Yeah. Basically, the, the type of campaign model is if we were selling a subscription to Daryl and Todd's newsletter. Right. Uh, so we're going to come up with a freebie that freebie. Mm. Maybe it's a report. Maybe it's a video. Maybe it's a, an audio, whatever on a particular topic that is extremely exciting to the marketplace right now, something that's top of mind, a major problem that they're having right now. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna create a marketing campaign that presents this report and the value of this report and what they're going to get from this report. And ultimately we let them know, I'm going to send you this report for free. After we build all the mm. value for this, I'm going to send you this report for free. When you take a subscription to X to Daryl and Todd's newsletter. Mm. And so, so it's the McDonald's toy model, but with the subscription attached, like I, I never buy McDonald's, but when we do road trips, like a coffee, there's sometimes in the Philippines here. And I always end up getting a stupid kid's meal because my daughter wants the toy. And, yeah. Right. The meal doesn't even necessarily eat the meal. It's the toy that gets me to buy. Yeah. You're, just, you're selling. You're basically yeah. selling the prospect on the premium and in or, and they they can only get the premium when they take the subscription. So, right. Okay. This premium, you're going to get this for free. And sometimes what you see is you see you get this premium for free and I've got a second premium and third premium. You get these three premiums for free when you take your subscription to XYZ newsletter. What that does, because in those instances where we don't know the content that we're going to be publishing in two months or three months, it's hard to build value around something that we don't know what we're going to be talking about or presenting in two to three months. So what so we do is we take a premium and we're able to now focus on concrete problems that, that this solves, concrete benefits, well. outcomes results we present those up front get them excited about that and then let them know you're going to get this for free when you take a subscription to xyz mm -hmm. got it got it so how is it different with the same access same access you're sending the trans selling the transformation and end result or you would still do the premium approach no so when 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 you're selling them on the um on the same thing over and over you don't need a premium driven lead right because there is mm -hmm. concrete there's concrete a concrete outcome, result, transformation, change mm. that you can present. So selling a subscription that is where they're getting access to the same thing month after month is much more akin to selling a one-off product than it is mm. to selling a, um, a, a subscription. Got it. Okay. Todd, I could sit here, pick your brain for days, but I know we got a hard stop and I want to respect your time. Obviously, I think anybody that's listening to this, this was a great information, like just, just nugget lit written uh, interview. You might want to listen to this more than once. Make sure you get all the notes. But for people that want to know the next step, what, what do they do? What do, what do they do next? Uh, so a great, a great spot to go for folks that want to learn more about the E5 method. Uh, I believe the team's got a great offer. Uh, I think they just cover 10 bucks or something like that. They can get a physical copy of the book and a bunch of video trainings at E5 bundle might be E5 bundle.com. Uh, let me actually confirm that before I give out that URL. Um, E5. You can also look at Todd, Todd Brown on social media. If you need to follow him, he's, he's kind of everywhere. He's omnipresent guy's been around for, I don't know, we're, we're, we're starting to get aged here. So yeah, <laughs> E5 bundle.com. 
um, if you want that. You can also just go to toddbrown.me or you're just on social, just Todd Brown. Todd Brown on, yeah. on Facebook, Todd Brown on Instagram. Um, yeah. That's, you know, yeah. One, one of the things that I want everyone here to know, though, is that especially in marketing, there is... Um, there's validity to staying power. And so when someone's been in the game for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I think you're probably pushing 30. I don't want to put it out there, but I think you've been in here more than 20. I don't know. I, I mean, people can see the gray hair, but um, there's definitely like, <laughs> you know, there's, I mean, I'm starting to get it. That's why I shaved. I shaved because it's all turning white. You got the opposite. It's of all problem. like, you know, I'm looking like, you know, <laughs> you know, Chris Kringle, uh, the, the marketing version of Chris Kringle <laughs> over here. Coming. Yeah, there you go. So, but, you know, I only try to bring people I trust on here. So go check out Todd's stuff. Clearly the proof is in the pudding. Um, and, you know, the only thing you're, you can try to spend with it. Two people trying to get to the Olympics, one's in a garage trying to figure it out with CDs and tapes and with a couple of buddies versus someone that goes and gets people that have been there, done that. Both have the potential to achieve it. One's clearly going to have more injuries, more setbacks, more problems, a, a more frustrating time. The other one's going to have a more easy, more lucrative, more fun experience. And so it really just depends what you want. Go check out Todd Brown. Um, there's no real benefit to me other than just Todd knowing me and going, thanks, Daryl. Um, but you'll probably thank me after. Um, and again, you may want to listen to this interview again. Just because as Todd said, there was a lot of nuggets in here. And so if you're a newbie, listen to this interview two, three times because there's just some fundamentals in here you need to get. Todd, I want to respect your time. Thank you so much, my friend. Was there anything I didn't ask you I should have asked you? Oh, gosh, man. We'll have to save that for the next time. Uh, I, I need to know at some point you're going to have to message me on Facebook and let me know what's the record number of times that somebody has been on your show so that we can figure out how to get uh, how to beat that record. And uh, and I'll be more I'd be more than happy to come back and and and, and crush that. Um, no, man, you're great, dude. And I, I appreciate you having me on here. I appreciate you letting me ramble for your your peeps and uh and yeah man we've been in this together a, a long time at this long point time. man long and so time. that says a lot about uh about you as well my friend and so mm -hmm. thank you so much for having me on here dude it's an honor and a pleasure we'll talk again soon you got it absolutely thank